you know, how somebody makes an entrance, it says a lot about that person. I think about the inaugural parade or the inaugural entrance of the president, which we'll probably see coming up soon. A lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of thinking goes into that because it communicates something about the administration that's coming in, right? So if you're the new president, you know, you, you, you want to communicate some things about who you are when you make your entrance into office. You know, you want to have a crowd of people so that there's a sense of excitement and a sense of anticipation for your administration. You want to have um, a certain kind of suit and a certain kind of speech prepared because you're trying to convey certain things about yourself. Or I think about a boxer or a cage fighter when they come into the ring, right? Like everything about the entrance into a fight matters in intimidating your opponent. Everything from the song that you pick to come out, everything from the way that you hold yourself and the way that you stare your opponent down. Entrances matter and entrances communicate a lot of things, right? Well, how did God enter this world? What was God's divine entrance into this world? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Oh, is that my wife? Oh, how'd she get up there? Slideshow. This is what happens when you have to be in control of everything. You, you run the slides from your phone, and you're thinking, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Um, anyways, so we're going to talk this morning about the divine entrance. We're going to talk about what did it look like when God entered into the story? What did it look like when God showed up? So we have God, the eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, Existent, what he exists outside of time and space, yet he comes into his creation. And what does it look like when he enters his creation? It says something, we, we learn something about who God is and the kind of administration that he has by the way that he enters. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So in Luke chapter 2, basically we have the birth material in the book of Luke from uh, Luke's perspective. But actually, you know, Luke, I don't know if you guys know this or not, Luke was a historian. He was very well-educated. He was very good at what he did. And the way that he wrote the book of Luke was he went and he talked to eyewitnesses. And the eyewitness that he talked to in order to produce the material of Luke, most scholars think, was actually Mary. We actually think Luke is the, the birth narrative through the lens of the mother, um, which, which is interesting. And there, there's certain details even all throughout the book of Luke in the first couple chapters in particular that make us think that it was probably through Mary's perspective. So what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the entrance, the divine entrance of God into his creation through the eyewitness account of Mary written down by Dr. Luke. And we're going to just work our way through the text in chapter two. And here's what I think God wants to do this morning. I think God wants to remind you that he is a God who enters the picture. Okay, he is a God who enters a picture, and I think we're going to see three things in the passage that are going to show us how God enters the picture. And my hope is that you'll see those three things and desire those three things in your life and desire for God to enter in those particular ways. Amen? So I'll give you those three things as we go. If you're a note taker, you can write them down. But that's the plan. Let's just dive in. Verse two, or verse one of chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, pause right there. It's interesting that when Luke is giving the account of Jesus' birth, who is the Savior, who is divine, he starts by mentioning Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, actually was referred to by his constituents, of course, as being the divine Savior. Did you know that? He was considered mostly by himself, to be the divine Savior. In fact, the word Augustus literally means holy or sacred one. 
Okay, so the Caesars, really starting at this point, the Caesars had this idea that they were God, and not only that they were God, but that they were the savior of the world, and that Rome was the light, and the, the, the Roman Empire was going to sort of take over the world and create this utopian vision, and, and Caesar Augustus saw himself as that figure. Now, Luke, of course, is juxtaposing uh, a different savior uh, and putting forth a different divine savior in the birth narrative, of course, is Jesus Christ. So from the first words there, we see Luke is showing that Jesus is entering into a hostile environment, a crowded environment, an environment where other people have already made the claim to be the Savior, and other people have already made the claim to be God. This is nothing new. But Jesus' story, Jesus' entrance into his story is very different. Verse 1, In those days, decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this is the first registration from Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, what's going on here? Basically, the Roman Empire went through a restructuring around this time. Uh, the Roman Empire was the ancient world. Did you know that? It literally was the ancient world. I mean, the, the ancient world was Rome. It was, it was just a vast kingdom, and the kingdom was, uh, or empire, I should say, was made up of multiple districts. Um, and within those districts, that was uh, the organization of those districts. Each one had a governor, and the way they organized those districts was the way that they made sure to elicit the taxes that they needed to keep the Roman Empire going. So because of this restructuring, Rome is literally um, making sure that they understand who the people are in their empire uh, by, by causing all of the Jews to enter back or go back to their uh, hometowns, where they, uh, basically where they're from. Now, Joseph, if you remember, he comes from the tribe um, of, oh shoot, Judah, hello, uh, comes from the tribe of Judah of the lineage of David, which comes out of Bethlehem. So Joseph and his new bride Mary literally have to go 90 miles up, because when you go to Jerusalem, you guys always go up, up to Jerusalem just because of this census, just because of this governmental um, decree that, that went out. So that's basically what's, what's going on here. Now, can you imagine, by the way, being a pregnant woman and I know you guys are like, no, I can't. I can't imagine being a pregnant woman. Um, but can you imagine being a pregnant woman in your third trimester, eight months pregnant, having to get up off the couch and walk 90 miles uphill to go to Bethlehem? Why? Because some stupid, snobby, God, Savior, Caesar, who thinks he's the man, decided he's going to completely restructure the empire, and now you are completely inconvenienced having to walk uphill for 90 miles. Okay? Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? Can you imagine how annoying that would be? It'd be intensely frustrating. So Joseph, in verse three, uh, 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, here's my first point. How does God enter into the story? How does, what is God's divine entrance into this world? Number one, God enters, and write this down, God enters through providential inconvenience. Providential inconvenience. You know what providence is? Providence is when God takes the stuff we produce and he reshapes it, reforms it, rearranges it to get us exactly where he wants us to go. 
and exactly where he had wanted us to go and intended it for us to go all the time. Providence is, uh, you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis when Joseph um, got sold into slavery by his brothers and then spent years and years and years dealing with hardship in his life. He got accused of sleeping with his master's wife and then he ended up back in prison again and it just got a really hard life and then at the very end of that and he stands before his, his brothers who sold him into slavery. Remember what he says? He says, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. That's providence. God took the evil that, that you did and he providentially repurposed it, restructured it, reorganized it to get um, me and you exactly where he wanted. Okay, So that's providence. But inconvenient providence is inconvenient, right? <laughs> it's inconvenient providence is when God takes something that feels completely like it's annoying and uses it to get us exactly where he wants us to be. How frustrated would Mary have been at this point? How frustrated would Mary have been of the inconvenience of the Roman government overreaching and making her do something that really doesn't make sense? She should be at home laying down, right? She shouldn't be hiking up the hill to Bethlehem. But the reality is God works his providence oftentimes in our inconvenience. He just does. He works his providence in our inconvenience. And I don't like that. Do you like that? I don't think anybody likes that. In reality, nobody likes that. But the reality is, that's how God works. Now, the crazy thing is that God needed Joseph and Mary. He needed them to be in Bethlehem. Why did he need them to be in Bethlehem? Because Micah, chapter 5, prophesied that that's where they were going to be born. And that's where God said the Messiah needed to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, was the city of David. It was where David uh, was was born, and consequentially, here's a little pop quiz for you. Consequentially, who was David's, oh, I'm gonna get this wrong, it's David's grandmother, right? No, David's father was Jesse, and Jesse's mother was, anyone? Ruth. Ruth. You were at the first service. Man, this guy, nobody else got it though, so you're good. You get a point. So, Jesse's mother was Ruth. Who was Ruth a descendant of directly within the first generation? Rahab. Okay, so think about the line, and Matthew's lineage picks this up, but think about the line that Jesus is coming from. He, he, you have Rahab the harlot, you have Ruth, who was a foreigner who married Boaz, and then Ruth had Jesse and David and so on. All of these guys lived in Bethlehem. And so because of that, um, Joseph needs to go back to his heritage, back to his roots, back to where he came from, which is Bethlehem for this this census. But crazy to me is the question, why would God use a massive Roman empire-wide census to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? Why wouldn't he just show up with an angel like you could do and say, hey, I want you to go to Bethlehem? I mean, it's like the most crazy, long, roundabout, complicated way for God to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem when they're supposed to be there. It's confusing. I mean, why didn't he just send an angel? And I think the answer is because I wouldn't have taken any faith. I think the answer is, is that, that, that God is so sovereign and so powerful that he can literally move the entirety of the Roman Empire just to get his son born in the right city at the right time. That's how powerful he is. Do you think he's not in control of things? You think he doesn't have the ability to control it? He literally changes the entire plans of the Caesar of the time just to get them where he wants them to be. He works through providential inconvenience. Imagine how much more peace we would have. Imagine how much more anxiety, less anxiety we would have if we just stayed within our pay grade. If we recognized that God providentially was going to handle the things that were bigger than us. 
I don't know about you guys, but like I, I am constantly fighting God for his job. Like I'm constantly trying to step out of the place where God has given me jurisdiction and step into the place where he has jurisdiction. Mary and Joseph have no say over this right now. Caesar has said, go to Bethlehem, and they have to go. And, and, and ultimately, they have a choice to make. Either they can say, okay, this is obviously God's providential hand, or they can push back and they can fight. Okay, and I would suggest to you that all of us would have a lot more joy and a lot more peace if, like Mary and Joseph, we would recognize that in the midst of our inconveniences, God is working providentially. That everything that we are not in control of is actually God working and getting us exactly where he wants us to be all the time. You know, one of the God's favorite ways to speak is through circumstance. You know, we're always looking for the eight ball answer, like, God, what do you want me to do? A lot of times, God just makes us do what we need to do. He just gets us where we're supposed to go, and that's where we end up. So first, God enters through providential inconvenience. Now look at verse seven. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we need to stop here because you guys are so familiar with this story. You're so familiar with it that you're picturing in your head just this like this, this sweet, serene moment, and, and, and you're forgetting the theological implications and ramifications of everything that's happening here. I mean, Luke dedicates one sentence to an eternal theological reality Jesus was born. Oh, okay. Do you understand what that means? The eternal God, Yahweh himself, star breather, became part of his creation, put on human flesh, stepped out of the comfort of eternal, uh, eternity, the glory of eternity, and stepped into a cold and hard and broken and dark world? I mean, this is insane that God would become one of us. It's, it's, it's theologically pregnant with pardon the pun, with amazing realities. You just have to stop and notice that. What is happening here? God is literally becoming part of his creation. But not only what is happening, think about where it's happening. Okay, again, Luke just kind of brushes right over this. He says, he gave birth to his firstborn son, or her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Okay, now when we think manger, we think like this cute little nativity scene we think like this really clean sort of place uh, where, where God had his son born. That's really not the reality at all. First of all, in, you know, an inn in the ancient world, an inn in Bethlehem wouldn't have been what we're thinking. We're thinking motel where you get your own private room. Um, it wouldn't have been like that at all. An inn would have basically been a big uh, empty or big, one big room with small dividers in it that, that had openings. So there was really no privacy. There would have been all kinds of crazy people in there. Uh, it wouldn't have been a safe place. It wouldn't have been a clean place. It wouldn't have been a private place. So that's where Mary and Joseph are just trying to get into. There is no hospital. There's no place for her to go give birth. And there's no room there for her. So they actually end up going into the common stable. Okay, the common stable would have been full of, you know, animals and the things that animals drop. Uh, I want to read this quote for you. Kent Hughes says, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. 
Trembling, carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he, as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Is that the way that you picture Jesus' birth? It's not the way I picture it, but that's the reality of it. You have a, a young, teenage, pregnant woman in a stable, in a barn with animal feces, no privacy, and the only person to deliver the baby is her bonehead carpenter husband who doesn't know the first thing about delivering a baby. I wouldn't, would you? I mean, this is the reality of what Jesus came into. What an earthy scene. What an earthy scene. I mean, what would you think? Like, wouldn't God, if he was gonna birth his son into the world, wouldn't he do it in a palace? Like, wouldn't he do it somewhere safe, somewhere um, sanitary, somewhere a little bit more holy and sanctified and majestic? But yet here is God birthing his son into this world in a stable, in a barn, in a feeding trough. It's astounding. It's crazy. What gets even crazier is not just where um, the divine entrance happens, but who shows up at it? Take a look at verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Pardon me, verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Uh, who would you invite into your hospital room when you just had a baby? I mean, you, maybe your mom. Maybe your grandparents, maybe your closest friends, the people that you trust. Who does God invite to come and visit the baby? Shepherds. Oh, that's great. You know, shepherds, are, they're cute, right? They're like you're picturing the little kids from the nativity scenes. Like you're picturing this nice, kind shepherd with a, a fluffy beard and the, 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 the shepherd's hook. And these were, you know, I mean, David was a shepherd. Jesus said he was a shepherd, right? Isn't this a great... Great person? Well, well, no, actually. Culturally, shepherds were despised. Did you know that? They, they, were, they were basically homeless, blue-collar, vagrant uh, type of people that lived and traveled from place to place, living outside, hardly ever bathing. They were known for being thieves. They were known for being liars. These are the last people in the world that you want coming into your stable to see your baby in a feeding trough. It's the last thing in the world you want. But yet, this is who God selects to bring to see the birth of the king. Take a look at how God invites him in verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I love this. It's not like the, the, the shepherds were selected by mistake. It's not like, oops, accidentally the shepherds showed up uh, because, you know, they were the only ones around. Like, God literally sends an angel to select these guys. He wants them present at the birth of his son. He specifically calls them. And then in verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you gospel of great joy. You might underline that, by the way. It says good news. You see that? You know what that is? You and Galeon, it's gospel. The angels are preaching the gospel right now to the shepherds, okay? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It's not, it's not just some cold, stiff, sterilized message. This is a joyful, joyous, overwhelming message of good news that will be for all people, 
The people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, note it, Savior who is Christ the Lord. What are they talking about? Savior, meaning he's the one who's going to deliver his people. Christ, which is from the Latin Christos, which is Messiah. He is the one that the Old Testament has been prophesying that would come. And he is the Lord. That word Lord is the Greek word kurios. Kurios literally is the word they use to translate in the Old Testament Yahweh in the Greek Septuagint. He's God. He's Messiah. He's the Savior. Now, just get your head around this, okay? The shepherds, these, these poor, homeless, smelly, blue-collar guys that just travel around and they're, they're despised largely by culture, they're sitting in the field and an angel shows up and starts preaching intense biblical theology to these guys. At this point, these shepherds know more about who Jesus is than really anybody else at this point. They, they reveal who Jesus is to them and then it gets even more crazy. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay, now imagine this, okay? Now Mary, she got one angel. Zachariah, he got one angel. The shepherds, heaven literally cracks open and, and they get a, a window into an angelic host, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of the most powerful beings you've ever seen in your life, so powerful they could kill you with a thought, and there's literally hundreds of thousands of them worshiping whatever just happened in Bethlehem. Can you imagine how you'd be feeling at this point, like if you're a shepherd? First of all, you're thinking, why me? Why, why am I the one that is let into this news? Why am I the one that's been shared this reality? And then you're thinking, your next thought, at least it should be, Whatever the heck is going on in Bethlehem, get me there. Because I just literally got a window into heaven and all of heaven and all of heaven's glory and all of heaven's attention and all of heaven's power is focused on that baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in Bethlehem. Don't, don't let this pass you. You know, the, the angels didn't see a baby. You know who they saw? They saw God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. They saw what we see in Revelation Chapter 5, verse 11. And it says, Who is worthy to take the scroll? It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals? For you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then listen to this. It's a very similar scene to what we're seeing right here, but it's in the end. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you could see heaven right now, you know what you would see? Read Revelation 1. You would see Jesus, and he would not be a baby. He would be high and lifted up. And there would be thousands and thousands and thousands of angelic hosts, day and night, pouring out praise, pouring out adoration, pouring out glory for Jesus. Why? Because he's the center of every created thing. He's the preeminent one. And all of that power is, in this moment, contained within a small baby. It's not lost on the angels. They know what's going on. Mary and Joseph may not realize the magnitude But you know who does at this moment? The shepherds do. They've just been given a window into the power and majesty and glory of that baby. 
and what he is destined for. Here's my second point. God enters through the earthy, he enters through earthy commonness. Through, through earthy commonness. Listen to the words here of uh, Kent Hughes. No child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself setting the example comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. The way that God enters says a lot about him. He enters into the earthiness of this world. He enters into the brokenness of this world. He enters into the sinfulness of this world, the pain of this world. That's where he comes. He could have come anywhere. He could have, he could have called the entirety of creation to receive him. He could have called the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and Herod and Caesar, and he could have made all of them come and bow down to him. He could have been born in the most majestic place, the most majestic palace, but instead, listen to me, instead, Jesus was born in the dirt. He was born in the dirt. Why? That's why he came. He came to be in the dirt. There's an interesting story, follow me on this, okay? There's an interesting story in the book of Samuel where Uzzah, no, that's a weird name, but Uzzah, he had a job, and the job was to take care of the, the, um, the ark, the covenant, the box, God's box. And the Ark of the Covenant was representative of God's presence. It was basically like a nuclear power reactor. Yeah, don't get too close. So after David, who loved the Lord, loved the presence of the Lord, after he takes Jerusalem and makes it his capital, he calls for the Ark to be brought into Jerusalem. This is an astounding moment. Okay, the new capital, the city of peace has been established, and now David, the man after God's heart, the king who, who typifies the king of kings, calls for the, the Ark to come, and Uzzah, his, his heart kind of starts beating. He's thinking, okay, it's always been my job to take care of this thing. I gotta make sure I get the ark into Jerusalem. And he thinks, oh, well, how am I gonna do that? How am I gonna do it in a way that's gonna ensure that it gets there? Well, God had said in the Old Testament that the way the ark was to be transported was with poles, okay, with four Levite priests carrying it on poles. But that's kind of old school, right? That's not very efficient. It's not very safe. What if one of them gets a cramp? I mean, this could go bad. So Uzzah has this great idea. He thinks, hey, there's this new invention out right now. It's called a cart. Let's put the box, let's put God's box on the cart. It'll be way more efficient, way more safe, and the odds are it'll, it'll get there. So what's Uzzah doing in that moment? He's managing the presence of God. He's making sure it's safe. We don't want the presence of God to end up in the mud, right? And so you know, you imagine a couple days go by and they're traveling slowly and Uzzah, he's like, you know, secure, secret service, he's just kind of walking alongside of the Ark of the Covenant and then all of, his worst feel, all of his worst fears come true in one moment. The cart hits a bump and it starts to wobble and he sees God's box, starts to slide off the cart and his heart is pounding and he's thinking, oh, I failed, God's box is gonna fall into the mud, and what does he do? He does what, exactly what you would do, exactly what any human would do that's been pouring their life into taking care of something. He reaches his hand out to stop the box from sliding. He touches the ark, 
And you know what happens? God strikes him dead. It's crazy. It's crazy, right? And you read that and you're thinking, what, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? I think that, for, for one, it's, it's obvious why he died, because he was a sinful man. And sin and God's perfect, holy, unbridled righteousness don't go together. That's why Jesus came to pay for our sins. But the reality I don't want you to, to miss here, the reality I want you to see in the story of Uzzah is that it would have been better for God to land in the mud than it would have been for the, for the box of God, the presence of God to touch the hand of a sinful person. What Uzzah was doing in that moment, he was restricting God's presence. He was managing God's presence. He was managing God's holiness. I think Eugene Peterson says this a little bit better than than I am right now. So let me read this. He says, over the centuries, as the Christian imagination has reflected on Uzzah's death, one insight has appeared over and over. It's fatal to take charge of God. Uzzah was the person who has God in a box and officially, or officiously assumes responsibility for keeping him safe from the mud and the dust of the world. Men and women who take it upon themselves to protect God from the vulgarity of sinners and the ignorance of commoners keep showing up in religious precincts in this imaginative context, we, guess, we can guess that Uzzah's reflexive act, reaching out to steady the ark as the oxen stumbled, wasn't the mistake of a moment. It was a piece of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. Here's what we do, guys, okay? We, 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 we go, I need to keep God and his perfect and his righteousness and his holiness, I need to keep him sterilized. I need to keep him out of the mud, keep him out of the dirt, because he doesn't want to go into the dirt. He, he doesn't want to go into the dirt of my life. He doesn't want to go into the dirt and the brokenness of other people's lives. That's not where God lives. God lives in holy, sterile, sanctified, gaudy churches. That's where he lives, like a hospital room that's just been bleached. That's where God lives, right? And what Uzzah's doing in that moment is he's saying, oh, no, God's presence is going into the mud. I have to stop it. And you know what God would say? No, I'm okay with the mud. I'm good with it. It's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they're standing outside the door and they see him literally eating with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, the refuse of the culture. And as Jesus is sitting there eating with them, the Pharisees are standing outside like Uzzah going, excuse me, do you understand who you're meeting with? Who you're eating with? They're trying to manage God's presence. They're trying to manage and, and sanctify and sterilize God's reach. You know what Jesus' response to them is? I came for these. I came for broken people. I came for sick people. I came for dirty people, muddy people, earthy people, common people. That's why God came the way that he came. The reason God came the way that he came in the fashion that he came in a barn, in a trough, is because he came to get people that grew up like that. The poor in spirit the needy, the broken, the muddy, the worthless, the last, the least, the lost. That's the people that God came to save. And the way that he came teaches us who he came to save. The poor in spirit, the poor and powerless. I'm not just talking about wealth. I'm talking about brokenness. You know, Jesus, look at me. You know, Jesus is okay with your dirt. Now hear me, I'm not saying he's okay with your sin. I'm not saying he's gonna let you go on sinning. But, but did you know that he's actually okay reaching his beautiful, pure, and perfect surgical hands into the manure of the life that you made providentially and actually healing you? What kind of, what kind of doctor would someone be who didn't wanna get any blood on him? 
What kind, of, what, kind of, what kind of doctor would it be that was so worried about germs that he wouldn't enter the room and deal with the patient? Jesus literally comes into the muck of our sin, the earthiness of life, and that's where he wants to encounter you. But guys, listen, that only works if you let him in. That only works if you let him in. It only works if you recognize that he's there to heal you and you give him the dirt. God rarely works in the sterile religious environments that we create, the institutional, over-organized environments that we create. They, they, they quench the spirit of God. You know when David was the most effective? It's when he was a young, ruddy, earthy man running around, hiding in caves, running from Saul, all of his flaws, all of his good or bad things. He was in love with Christ. He was in love with Jesus. He didn't know at the time, but he, he was in love with Yahweh. He was in love with God. And then you know where his life started to drop off? It was when he found himself in the sterile, controlled environment of his palace and the comfort of not having to be in earthy things. The reality is God wants to work through the common things. It's why he called the shepherds. It's why Jesus was born in a barn. It's why Jesus was born in the manger, to remind us that God wants to work in the common things. We spend so much time trying to think about how to get out of the common things. We spend so much time trying to figure out how to get away from the sacred, or how to, how to get away from the earthy things and get to the sacred and the spiritual things. But in reality, God meets us in those common things. My wife and I have been taking care of this, this sweet little two-month-old foster baby, and you know what my life's looked like for the last week? Being up at one in the morning with vomit on my shirt. You know, it's like, it's not vomit, it's spit up, it's a baby, okay. But spit up on my shirt, and I'm like, I'm like, is this spiritual? This is pretty earthy. And you know what God kept reminding me of this week? Oh, this is spiritual. This is more spiritual than any sacred temple, than any mountain. This is a sacred thing. It's a sacred thing because it's God's work, and God's work is in the common things. God's work is in the blood, and the sweat, and the smell, and all of the things that would have been in that stable. I mean, there's nothing glorious about that moment. It's reality. It's cold, dark reality of, of a bloody, sinful, uh, broken world that this Jesus came into. But in the midst of that, God was bringing a sacred son into this world. So I would encourage you guys, don't despise the common things. Yeah, I go to work every day. I hate it. Guess what? That's where God works. That's your sanctuary. That's where God wants to meet you. I raise kids all day. That's where God wants to meet you. And I would encourage you, don't despise the earthy things because Christ wants to come and reach his hands into them. Don't keep him out of the mud. You know one of the things that made me so angry when I went to Israel? I was so excited to see Bethlehem. I'm picturing this sweet little town, you know, with like a little cave, and I'm gonna check out where Jesus was born, and I, I get to Bethlehem, and you, you know what I saw? A big, stupid, gaudy church. Somebody came in hundreds of years ago and built a big church over the top of the whole thing, and you don't get to see anything. I mean, you go into this basement, and supposedly there's this place, but it's just dripping with gaudiness and ornate, flowery gold. It's just disgusting, and it's like humans have done everything they could possibly do to try to sanctify a place and make it special, and you know what they did? They ruined it. That's what we do. We, we come in, we try to make things sanctified or holy, and we ruin them. So point number two, God enters through earthy commonness. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, 
The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. Can you imagine them doing anything else? (laughs) They just saw heaven crack open and thousands of angels worshiping whatever it is that's in Bethlehem. You better believe they say, let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help but imagine that they're saying what the Lord has made known to us with an immense amount of joy in their voice. <laughs> the Lord has made known to us. Shepherds, God has shared this with us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know what's amazing about this is that God selected the shepherds not only to um, come and greet the king, but he, he, he selected the shepherds to be gospelers, to, to take the message that the angels shared with them and to go and to share it with Mary. There's a cycle here that's really cool if you, if you look at it. So, so God, actually, I have a slide for it here. So it's, it always starts with proclaiming, right? It always starts with proclaiming. Uh, the gospel is proclaimed. The angels proclaim it. And then the shepherds hear it. Okay, but hearing isn't enough, right? You hear it, but then you believe it. The shepherds hear it, then they believe it, and then they go, right? That's the act of faith. And then they go to glorifying and praising, which leads ultimately back into proclaiming. So the, the, the shepherds hear the gospel, they, they go, they declare the gospel, and then Mary hears the gospel. And Mary believes the gospel. And Mary proclaims the gospel. And it starts the cycle all over again. And all of this is activated by faith. And here's my third point. God enters through faith-filled response. So not only providential inconvenience, earthy commonness, but also faith-filled responsiveness. Faith-filled. The way God loves to enter is through the faith of of individuals. He loves to enter through faith. And faith starts by hearing, hearing the gospel One of the primary entrance points of God oftentimes in our life is faith. Luke is so good at recording these faith opportunities. You notice that? I mean, Mary has a faith opportunity. Zachariah has a faith opportunity. The shepherds have a faith opportunity. They all have these faith opportunities. Opportunities when God presents truth, they have opportunity to respond. And when they respond and they say yes, that's when God enters into their story. That's when God activates what he's wanting to do in their life. So he enters through faith-filled response. Now let me just end with three practical points. Okay, three practical points on how we do this practically. And then we're gonna get into some discussion. How do we do this practically? How do we invite God to enter into our story? What is the key today practically for a divine entrance? Okay, I don't know, maybe some of you guys aren't saved, maybe some of you guys are, but either way, we should be asking every day, Lord, please enter enter my story, enter my day, enter my life. How do we do that practically? So let me give you three words, okay? Write them down. Three words. Number one, go. Go. I want you to notice this. The shepherds don't stop at hearing. They go. They go to what? They go to the person of Jesus. Did you catch that? I think this is the chronic disease of Western Christianity. We've become fat, hearers 
of truth that never exercise by going to the person of Jesus Christ. I am guilty of this. We take in and we take in and we take in and we hear and we listen and we learn and the gospel becomes an inoculated, we become inoculated to it. And it no longer has the effect. I love the demeanor of the shepherds because they hear the good news of who Jesus is, but they don't go, oh, cool, that's awesome. I wrote it down, it's in my journal, awesome. They get up and they go and they actually want the substance of the person of Jesus. You know, we just settle so many times for a truth and we miss the person, don't we? The gospel truth is meant to get us to the person, the person of Jesus Christ, not just the reality, it's the person. The shepherds didn't just want the truth, they wanted the person. Who is this baby? Let's go to him. And I would encourage you guys, if you wanna see God entering into your life more, if you wanna see God working more in your life, don't just settle for the truth, go for the person. Number two, so first word, go. Number two, wonder. Wonder. Look at verse 18. Actually, look at verse 17. So the shepherds, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I love that. The shepherds show up, and they're preaching, proclaiming this truth, and everybody who heard it had a sense of wonder. You know what wonder is? Wonder is when you see something that so captivates you and so captivates your attention that you would do anything just to get a little bit more of a glimpse of the full picture. Like whatever, man, whatever that is, I just gotta learn more about that. You ever been captivated by something? Just a sense of wonder and mystery and desire. I wanna know more about that. What this did in this moment for all those that heard it is they went, whatever this is, I need more of it. Whatever this is, I wanna learn more about it. And for some of you guys, man, that are sitting here and you're just feeling like, gosh, I just don't know how to reactivate my excitement about God. Have you lost your sense of wonder? You know, sometimes it's not so much we need to do something. It's not always so much we need to just, just uh, you know, go through some process or something. The reality is, is, is when you have a childlike wonder, then you're excited to get up and read your Bible in the morning because you just can't wait to learn more about this thing called God's story, God's redemptive plan. This sense of wonder is the excitement of knowing that there's more out there. Wonder is the thing Netflix taps into that keeps you watching episode after wonder. I gotta know what happens, right? This is what's happening in this moment. These guys are captivated by wonder. Number three, not only go, not only wonder, but number three, treasure. You notice what Mary does? Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. I love that. Mary, I can just imagine her sitting there, just gone through an intense labor, 90-mile trek in a stable, and she's sitting there watching the shepherds tell her the story of the thousands of angels that were just worshiping her son. And I can just imagine her smiling ear to ear. And I can imagine her literally taking that truth and the feeling that came with it and putting it in a box. And I don't mean the kind of box you stick under your bed or you put in your garage. The kind of box that you put right on your dresser that you pull out every day. She treasured these things. They become central to her, everything that she does, everything that she is. 
And I can imagine her day after day as she raised Jesus, as she bounced him on her knee, as she changed diapers, as, as she watched him grow, and even as she's sitting there watching her son die on the cross after having his back mutilated and his hands pierced, I can imagine that she's standing there pulling out that truth and treasuring it once again and pondering it once again, that this son of hers would not just come to die, he would come to save. He would come to redeem, he would come to save her, that he was her greatest hope. Treasure these things, treasure the gospel, treasure it, ponder it, think about it. Have a sense of wonder. What's astounding to me about this whole story in, in, in Christ's entrance, it's, it's not how he came, it's not when he came, it's, it's the fact that he came. Isn't it astounding? I mean, God showed up. He came, and he came humbly. What does the divine entrance teach us about the person of Christ? It teaches us that he came for the broken. He, he came for the earthy. He came relatable, and that's what he is, right? He's our high priest. He's a relatable high priest. He knows what it's like to be in poverty. He knows what it's like to be broken and poor in spirit. He knows what it's like, and, he, and when you pray to him, you're praying to someone who's relatable. You're, you're praying to someone who, who literally came for you. His entrance teaches us so much about him, and I'm just so thankful that he came, amen? So thankful that he came. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Luke chapter two. Thank you for this season where we get to stop and reflect on these things. I know that we've all heard the story many times and that it can become commonplace. But God, would you allow just how scandalous of a thing this is to, to really affect our hearts? That the creator of all things would be born in the mud. It's just astounding. And that you would be born in the mud to pull us out of it. That you would come to touch sin in order to heal it. Lord, thank you so much for that. Would you just thank him for that right now? God, we thank you for the gospel. We praise you for the gospel this morning. Lord, you're so worthy. In Jesus' name.